Between the shortfalls at COP26, the wrestling in the United States Congress over clean energy, and the increasing number of extreme environmental events, it has been an incredibly eventful year bringing us up to Earth Day 2022. The question, however, is how many more Earth Days might we have left? And there are a tangle of issues, not just climate change, but biodiversity and the way the financial system plays into all of this to perhaps turn shareholders into stakeholders and use money to make this a better planet. Today, Dave and Darm round up three old friends to talk through these issues from their unique and piercing vision of them. Author and thought leader Chris Skinner, Jihan Hyde, the founder of Communique, and David Lace, the CPO of Ecolytic, here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Thanks to those who've joined and thanks to those who will be joining very soon. It's great to be here. We're celebrating Earth Day. Darmish and I are very grateful for the panellists turning up. And yeah, we're just looking forward to a good discussion. Before we start and go into questions, it'd be great just to kind of get some introductions for people who don't know who the panellists are. So Jihan, would you like to kind of kick off with an introduction? Yes, of course. So hi, everyone. I'm Jihan, and I'm the founder of a consultancy called Communique. What we do is we help organizations to communicate their environmental, their social and their governance impact, in other words, ESG. We are a team of nine and we're all from underdeveloped countries and underrepresented communities. We are a B Corp certified organization, making us the first female black Arab organization to be accredited in the world. So we're very pleased with that. Amazing. I I don't think people realize (laughs) how difficult it is to get B Corp certification. So that's a truly outstanding result. Yes, yes. Now we're very proud of that. Very, very proud of that. And so, yeah, what else? Our work has so far impacted 200,000 employees, 150,000 customers and yielded an investment opportunities worth 300 million pounds. So that is us in a nutshell. So David, tell us about Ecolytic. Sure. I start with Ecolytic and I start by myself. So we are all about helping consumers understand their impact on the environment by their purchase behavior and trying to attach a little number, CO2 number to it and trying to bring this a little bit into a context to get an idea of what is my personal influence and where can I start to change that. About myself, one of the co-founders, also founder of a non-for-profit called the Organization for Sustainable Consumption. I'm actually in the payments industry over the last 18 years out now. Started in acquiring, moved into issuing seven years ago, got dragged into the environmental change society. And yeah, love it there and trying to combine both worlds. 
And for the three people in the world that don't know Chris Skinner, <laughs> Chris, do you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> Thanks, Dermash. And hi, Dave, Gihan, David. So welcome. I'm a prolific author and writer and have produced 17 business books and five children's books. And my latest one is all about how technology and finance can be used to make the world better. A lot of people probably don't realize how integral the financial system is to how we use and abuse the planet. And this book shines a spotlight on that and includes lots of different perspectives, including a wonderful chapter from Gihan, but also perspectives from America, South America, Asia, Africa, Europe. So it's a really in the round view of how can we use technology and finance to make the world better. So I'm looking forward to, I mean, it's a long time coming, Chris, because you have actually been on this agenda for a long time. I mean, the link between the banks and, you know, saving the planet, right? How long have you been on this track? I remember when I was running the Financial Services Club in London in the 2000s, and we had a professor talking about climate change and the impact it would have on the insurance industry. So probably I've been on this for a couple of decades. I haven't really focused upon it specifically until the last few years. And it came to a head, I guess, at the end of the 2010s, when we started talking about stakeholder capitalism and the whole way in which we should think about in the round serving society and the world, not just the shareholders. It's interesting that Earth Day is nicknamed in 2022, invest in our planet. And I think that's a very important message. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be talking a lot about how financial services can help and respond to the challenges of things like climate change. But before we get into that, I was kind of keen to get all of your views on some of the key challenges that we're all facing with regard to climate change. So the IPCC, which is a UN-backed organisation, has just released Another report, which is sort of 3,000 pages long, basically saying that all of the targets that were set out in the 2015 Paris Agreement are not going to be met. So it feels like there's a bit of doom and gloom in terms of what's going on. But I was keen to get your views on the challenges and what's going on to kind of get the conversation started. So, Gian, I don't know if you'd like to start. I'll speak about the challenges when it comes to communications. How about that? And the rest can talk about the technical stuff. The challenge that my clients are facing, and that's why they come to us, is the technicality that falls behind ESG and people on planet. It's such a technical subject and not everyone really understands it. Not everyone wants to understand it, depending on where you are operating, which country you're operating, which region you're operating, what type of organization you're operating. Not everyone has the appetite or the willingness to understand or the urgency of implementing ESG within their business model. So when they do come to us, it means either they're forced by the regulators to do so, or they're forced by the customers to do so, or by their employees themselves. And this is where we come in. And because I understand the technicality behind ESG, I've upskilled myself. So my background is marketing. I'm, I'm a certified marketer who turned into an internal communicator, who is now had to upskill myself because otherwise I'll be obsolete if I don't do that into understanding the technical part of ESG. 
So what we do is we are helping these organizations to demystify it and to really start understanding what is the small steps that we can take that would put us in the right direction? What are the hanging fruits that we can pick at the moment? We help them by understanding what does the ESG really mean? What is the purpose of ESG within the organization? How does it align to their values, to their mission and vision? So to answer your question, Dave, the challenge, number one, is the technicalities. Number two, there is no international standards or checklist that people can follow. Okay. And number three, the lack of understanding of the urgency of it. So these are the three challenges that my clients are currently facing. I see a lot of comms on ESG from a number of companies, but how close do you think they're walking the talk as well? I mean, how much is the action behind the words? Not much at all, by the way. I suspect that. No, not much at all. There is a huge risk of greenwashing. And this is why I think communicators are kind of afraid of tackling this subject because they're the first ones that would be penalized if something goes wrong. And that's because there is no standard checklist to help us as communicators to figure out, okay, how do we spot greenwashing? I mean, in the UK at the moment, we do have the competition market authorities have launched the green code the green claims code. And it's basically a whole list of lines that you need to avoid because they mean nothing. So the word eco, for example, we want to save the planet. Okay. What does that really mean? You know, things like that. So there aren't any guidelines for communicators to follow either. It's fascinating. That whole, whole area of measurement and standardization is such a big and important one. And I guess, David, in terms of what Ecolytic are doing, You know, you're actually looking at providing measurement to people through their carbon footprint. How have you looked at measurement and the standardization of measurement? How do you kind of tackle that? And what are some of the other challenges that you see beyond measurement as well? It all starts with measurement, right? Because measurement brings transparency and transparency brings clarity. And then we have an easier way of actually acting on it, right? So I think it's the same with consumers and businesses. People realize like, I would like to do something, but I actually have no idea where to start, right? So I learned plastic isn't good for the environment. So I stopped using plastic bags, but now I actually learned if I use a plastic bag more than once, it actually has a better footprint sometimes than a fabric-based bag. So it's awful complicated, right? We need guidance. We need help. Sustainability is complicated and we need clarity on this. I basically fully agree. We need standardization, right? So right now, every startup out there is doing their stuff, right? It's like looking into, hey, we have some numbers here. We have some numbers here. But if you look at it, I think there's more than 20,000 different climate studies coming out each and every year. So if there are a group of 10 people looking at a methodology and saying, hey, that used to be right. Next day, it's already outdated, right? So we need to find a way to actually standardize, figuring out what is the right way to approaching certain measurements, et cetera, and working on that, right? But I think it all starts with a transparency that businesses need in ESG, because let's face it, if you're a business, you want to do something, a lot of people still saying, what can I do? All right, I changed my electricity provider, got that. I'm doing a bit of waste recycling, got that. But how do I implement it actually into my business that I can actually take care of all of the other emissions that I might have through my suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, from our end, standardization is key. And we need to work more together, right? We need to share more. 
a lot of this measurement and transparency comes by sharing information and data. But even today, over 20 years of digitalization, we learned data has a value. So we keep them for us. Let's face it, only a few companies monetize on data, but we still have this feeling data are us and they're tricky because there are a lot of rules. But when it comes to sustainability, we need to be more open. We need to share information that we have in order to do better assessments, do better measurements, and also build up standards on top of it. I think the standards, it's such an important topic. I guess the problem with climate change is it's a global yeah. problem. And, you know, I describe it as like a hydra. You sort of chop off one head and another one grows. You know, it's just so complicated. Somebody needs to simplify that. You look at like COVID, when that happened, we've got global reporting and I'm comparing like stats. We're looking at the same stats globally, in effect. And it was fairly simple, the reporting on that, but it was done globally, right? And I can't see anything similar to that, I guess, for a more important topic. Who should be kind of driving that? Is that the regulators? Is it the UN? I guess it's a big question, but who do you think are the right people to be in the spotlight for kind of doing that? Regulators need to pick it up and the industry needs to pick it up. It's not a problem that we can pinpoint to someone saying, well, please take care of it. I trust you in it. We have done that over the last 50 years, right? Saying, hey, right. yeah, politics will fix it. They are driven by the industries, right? Industry has no interest in fixing this stuff. So at least some of that. Now it's up to consumers that drive this huge pressure into all in businesses and politics, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's up to all of us. And I think it's really, we need to get together with politicians, with businesses, with consumers, and actually start doing it. I'm not just talking about it. <laughs> Fantastic. So Chris, as you've been writing the book, what are some of the challenges that you've identified around particularly, I guess, climate change? Well, obviously, this conversation is multidimensional, as you've discovered from Johan David's discussions already. But there are two particular dimensions that drive me and came into focus in the book. The first is the climate emergency. And I actually encountered quite a few people who deny there is a climate emergency. In fact, they say that a lot of what we're doing with renewables are damaging the planet more than the things that we're doing with fossil fuels. By way of example, millions of birds are killed every year by wind turbines. Polar bears are thriving in the Canadian Arctic, but they're not obviously in the European Arctic. So you can have different dimensions to the debate. And the bottom line is, is there really a climate emergency? In my view, I don't care about that. I care about how we are creating damage to the planet. Whether there's a climate emergency or not, and it's debatable, which some of you may say it's not debatable, but it is debatable, we are damaging the planet. And the financial system's at the heart of this because oil, gas, coal, fracking, all the stuff that we're doing to Earth is not helping the Earth get well. Since the Paris Accord of 2015, almost $5 trillion has been invested in oil, gas, coal, and fracking by the financial institutions. Just 60 of them, you know, not the whole financial world. That's just 60 institutions. 71% of all the greenhouse gas emissions since 1985 have been created by just 100 companies. In fact, almost half of the emissions are created by just 25 companies. And these are the guys 
like Exxon, Shell and BPs of the world, which if we could change their focus through finance, could make the world better. And that is happening. It's quite interesting, actually. I've seen some other figures recently that show that of all the companies that are doing the best for renewables and changing the way in which we treat the planet, the energy companies are number one on the list. But my issue is not to do with that. It's much more to do with biodiversity because I'm a very keen animal lover. I support the World Wildlife Fund. I always have and a number of other institutions that try and protect our animal population, particularly orangutans, one of my passions. But since 1970, 68% of all the world's biodiversity has been lost, and particularly in South America and Africa. And I have a huge issue with how humans treat our fellow mammals and reptiles and living creatures. That's where I'm coming from. It's not anything to do with climate emergencies, to do with biodiversity. And that's where I see the biggest issue, which is we are destroying our neighbors' habitats and we need to protect them. So there are issues, but as I say, it's multidimensional. And to David's point around, can an individual make a difference? Of course you can. Where did Greta Thunberg come from? But the squeeze is coming from two sides. And this is what I find interesting with financial institutions. There's activist investors, the pension funds, the asset managers who are saying, we have to have a future, otherwise, what are we here for? And the activist consumer, which represented by groups like Extinction Rebellion, who also feature in my book. And a lot of people say, Chris, why are you giving Extinction Rebellion a voice? And my view is you have to see this in the round. You can't just see it from one view. So I'm very keen to give Extinction Rebellion a voice so we can hear what they have to say and then make our own minds up around whether they're talking rubbish or whether it's real. It's really interesting. Going back to the climate emergency, and I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a debate and there's going to be both sides of the debate. I guess, you know, one of the things that, I was very struck by when I started researching about what was going on and the impact of financial services on climate change was the fact that the central bankers are some of the ones who have the loudest voices, I guess, in terms of what's going on. So obviously you've got Mark Carney, who's the ex-governor of the Bank of England. And then, you know, you've got other central bankers who are kind of looking at the data and going, well, actually, Whatever's going on, there's sort of huge risk entering into the system. So I think, you know, it's kind of interesting. And one of the things I've begun to realize, and you've kind of touched on it, is that financial services has a huge opportunity to help readjust the way things are done. And I guess, David, to you, it's that's sort of one of the reasons that Ecolytic exists, is to kind of help consumers and businesses change their behaviours based on things like their carbon footprint. Do you want to kind of explain a bit about how Ecolytic works, some of the customers that you've got and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Happy to do. We see it more like an educational tool, right? So it's education about personal influences. And so it's very simple. We take payment transactions from the banks and we calculate a CO2 footprint around it. We soon release a new methodology around water, also biodiversity and so on. What happens if I go now to the grocery store and do my you know, weekly shopping? What is the influence that I personally have and what can I do to limit it? So it's really just this 
educational tool that helps to guide what can I change. And I think it's very fascinating because technology is just a tool. It's like a pen. It works. It does the job that I want, but we can use it for good or bad things. And we're just using the data that banks have for decades already to help guide consumers in their day-to-day lives doing a little less influence on the planet. And that's basically how it works. So we're working with tier one banks, one big bank in the Netherlands announced the partnership with us to make the public. A couple of fintechs that are really extreme in the sense of trying to push this product to the maximum level. But ultimately, the way we see it is really, let's help each and every consumer do their day-to-day lives and spendings to get an idea of what they can change. The next level, I think, is now about engagement. Right. It's like, how do I interact with this data that you're exposing? And, you know, it makes a difference, right? I think there's some really compelling things out there now as well, which are starting to almost gamify into action, right? And I'm really interested to hear from the panel if you've seen more stuff like that as well. How do we get people into positive actions around climate change behavior? So Chris has said that the financial services play a big role in tackling climate change. But what we are not realizing is the enormity for us to change the infrastructure of the current financial services around the world. We do need $6 trillion a year to do that. And that's not an easy ask. And this is where I think fintech comes in and helps these banks to tackle climate change. So if we just take a step back, the fintech market as we speak is worth $325 billion. And it's going to grow by 25% between the year of 2022 to 2025. But what's fascinating, and I don't think people actually sit back and reflect on it, is that fintech, so if we take just the Asia region, just Asia, okay, the small businesses in Asia alone equate to 42% of the continent's GDP. And they actually hire 50% of the population in Asia. What fintechs are very good at, they're very good at tackling the social aspect within ESG. Because you're helping businesses to thrive in economies that don't have the right infrastructure. Take me from Sudan, for example. If it wasn't for a fintech, my fellow Sudanese in Juba and in Darfur, which is, as you know, a war-inflicted area, people would not have been able to survive because every single person around the world has a mobile phone, but not everyone has a bank. And this is where fintechs come in. And this is why I'm a huge fan of fintech. And I want to help as much as I can. But the problem I'm facing with the fintechs, and please don't shoot me for it, is you are not yet focusing on the environmental impacts. Very few are focusing on the environmental impacts. Everyone is focusing on growth and on getting the right talent, but no one is focusing on thinking, okay, so what is our impact when it comes to environment? Except, of course, for the green fintechs. And by the way, last year alone, 5,000 fintechs just came out of the blue in Europe, green fintechs. So that's a great achievement that this is happening. But education is definitely key. And I agree with David, education is key. And from a communications point of view, this is where we come in and we support you to figure out and give you the right data that you need for us to decide how are we going to educate? Because 
It's thanks to communicators, and I'm hoping there are some fellow communicators in the room. It is actually thanks to communicators that we bring your vision to life. But we won't be able to bring the vision to life if we don't have the right data. And this is where sustainability comes in. And I don't think a lot of people understand. By you being sustainable, you are actually being more resilient because you will know what type of data you will collate, that you need to collate. You will know what type of data you need to focus on to mitigate all the risks. And by that, you're arming me as a communicator to help you avoid greenwashing. But unfortunately, as I said, the majority of the founders I'm speaking to at the moment, all in their mindset is marketing, 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 growth, growth, growth. And they're not driven by the investors more so than the individuals. But what they don't realize is that if you get your house in order, the investors will come. Yeah. But they don't realize that. And especially because marketing, you'll always see in all of the fintechs I've been working with, the marketing team will be wanting to go this way and the founders will be wanting to go the other way. And the marketing is never involved in the decision-making. They've always been involved later on. And this is what I wanted to add to tap into what Chris and David said. Fantastic. Chris, what's your kind of perspective on that? There's so many nuances to this conversation, but the headlines are basically that most banks are talking about ESG but they're just talking, they're not walking. It's greenwashing, as Yihan mentioned. The worst culprit is BlackRock, which is one of the biggest investment asset management companies in the world, who say from Larry Fink's annual newsletter, this is the number one thing that we're doing. And then you look under the hood and over 90% of what they're investing in is non-sustainable investments. So they're a big corporate, but so are JP Morgan and Citi and Barclays and HSBC. They're all stating as marketing programs that they're green and they're not. We have to change that behavior. I was particularly interested in something Anna Bartan, the executive chair of Santander said, which is the key for banks is that you can't switch off fossil fuel investments immediately. You have to do it over time. So by way of example, I'm living near Warsaw in Poland, which depends on coal-fueled energy. You can't turn that off overnight because that would mean that Poland would switch off overnight. But what you have to do is create a renewable reward program that incentivizes the companies that provide energy to Poland to switch to renewable energy. And that takes time. Gihan touched on inclusion. And for me, that's a massive area which I covered in Digital Human, a book of a few years ago, because the message of that book was that the technology world is making sure that finance is available to everybody through the mobile telephone. And that's a key point, which is changing things, along with education and financial literacy. There's a lot of fintech startups focused on inclusion and literacy, which we've never seen before. And that's rippling back into the mainstream I have seen A to BC and other banks doing financial literacy programs, which we haven't seen before. And part of that is education, going to David's point, which is how do you make sure that the consumer, wherever they are, of the seven, eight billion people on earth, are aware of their impact on climate and biodiversity? And you can do that through finance. And 
Damesh, you mentioned Kent. Are there any good examples? You know, the example I covered as a case study is Ant Forest from Ant Group, which has planted millions of trees across China because of people's behaviours. And the way that works is basically the more you are green in your financial behaviours, the more trees they plant. So if you walk to work or cycle to work instead of taking a taxi or a bus or your car to work, the more points you get. The more you recycle, the more that you buy goods that are not plastic, the more points you get and the more points make the prize of planting a tree. But it goes further than that. There's Arlandsbanken from Finland, which has the Baltic credit card. And the more green you are, the more that you are providing support to saving biodiversity in the Baltic oceans. And they then white labeled that to MasterCard. And I think they have over 100 million users worldwide now of that program. So it's starting to change. But I think the biggest issue is around not so much educating the consumer, but educating the institutions. If corporations feel the difference and their pension funds and asset managers feel the difference and treasury feels the difference, then we can make a big change. Because we all as individuals can recycle and do what we have to do with our waste and avoid plastic. But we have to get the institutions and the corporations to change. And that's where banks play the biggest role. It's such an interesting point. And I think one of the things that I guess I worry about is the banks sort of pass everything down to their customers and say, well, look, our customers are doing all their carbon footprinting and all the other bits and pieces without really thinking through a proper strategy which covers everything. So I don't know how many banks have said they're going to net zero. And what does that mean? They haven't really then come out and said, what that means in terms of the actions that they're going to be taking. Going back to the whole greenwashing thing, one of the things that I guess is a concern that they might be tempted to kind of offset their way out of the problem, which is just moving the problem around the world rather than tackling the problem. Just picking up on that, Dave, you have the headline, we are ESG and sustainable, and then you have the organisation underneath and most of the top line, the headline is marketing. It's not actually the organization. And one of the themes of Digital for Good that I investigated in depth is companies that have purpose. And this is the second point, which is, are you a purpose-driven organization? And if you're purpose-driven, it's not a marketing thing. It's actually a cultural thing. It's ingrained in the DNA of the company. And there's very few banks have that DNA because they're over a century old, they've lost their purpose. But I have found some, they're typically fairly new. They are companies that have founders who in their DNA had purpose. My favorite example is Adrian Gore from Discovery Group in South Africa, because the purpose of Discovery Finance is use wealth to create health. It's a really simple purpose, but the organization of the bank and the insurance company is how can we create a company where people can be healthy through wealth and vitality which is something well known in the uk uses fitbit to monitor whether you actually do work out and if you do work out your life assurance premiums are less 
You know, that to me is a really simple connection. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future. Yeah, that's kind of what I was alluding to on the gamification side of things. You do these things and this is the benefit to you, but there's a broader thing for the rest of the planet too. I'm a big fan of the Vitality one. Obviously, I get my points by the buckets. <laughs> <laughs> no, but going back to your question regarding gamification, gamification is definitely a method that is used by communicators when you want to change mindset. You were asking if there was a good example. There is an example that I'm actually impressed by because they take it to a step further. So there is an app called Scrap and they were featured in my latest FinTech Futures column. And what they do is basically you download the app, you scan the barcode of the product that you want to recycle and it tells you how you should be recycling it and if it is recyclable or not which is fine. I love this, fine. But what I really liked about them is they took it a step further. They've actually now joined forces with several councils around the UK. And what they did is now they're asking the community to start using the app. And whoever gets to use the app as much as possible, the council would reward that person or that household with points and that points is actually cash that would go towards the person's selected charity within the community yeah yeah i love that idea i mean there's another one that was well ahead of its time and actually i'll be brutally honest it was done by my cousin hitesh he created an app called bread for jam right and what he identified was that Digital was kind of like separating people. People weren't meeting up as much as before. He wanted to bring communities in together. And so essentially through the app, you could set up an event where people would physically meet and exchange goods, right? And the point being is that I can't make use of this mug because I've got too many of them. Maybe somebody else can. And for that, I get something back. In the UK, as kids, we grew up with Saturday Swap Shop. Similar kind of idea, but this was more social. You know, it was about bringing people together, but also emphasizing that what you discard as what you think is rubbish is probably gold to somebody else, right? And that idea, I just love it. I'm a big fan of trying to get stuff fixed and recycling, you know, rather than just tipping it into the bin, you know? Custard pie in your face. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And now let's not go down this rabbit hole. Condensed milk sandwiches, though. <laughs> So, David, it's that whole thing around the circular economy, I think, is interesting. And I know you are working with Visa, and I think Visa are really interested in the payment side of the circular economy. Could you sort of shed a bit of light on some of the things they're doing and how you're working with them around that? Yeah, sure. Visa is one of the most important partners for us as a small organization. It gives us this huge scale worldwide, which we could never reach, right? And the resources they put into it, the way they interact, I think it has changed, which is really, really interesting to see because when they first connected with Visa, I think it was more than three years ago, it was like the biggest competition did some things like, mm, now we need to look into it. But it was actually very surprising. At the end, we found out it was one woman in Visa that actually you know, took the chance that, well, there is something, let me work on this. And she was endorsing us into the organization and over the last 
three years has changed so much new positions coming up and they're going into dividing now what can we do as visa internally what can we do through our network how can we leverage this so you see the change that like a massive organization is going through and well learning even from us right which at the beginning was very surprised with really small people here but we actually become this influence saying hey this is what we think is the right way of doing so and over time they start listening more and adopted so there's a lot they're doing i actually don't know everything that they're doing i just know the touch points that we have and they see the huge potential in our part of it and we're just really growing it now across the planet with their help and really educating consumers it's really interesting i actually want to make one other point that you touched on chris earlier and i think what for me is really still surprising for the financial industry is that there's a so slow adoption because if you look at it Sustainability at the end means we need to upgrade our infrastructure, right? So it's good if you take the bus, but the bus still runs on gasoline. So we need to change it. We need to upgrade our house. We need to upgrade our energy consumption. Pretty much everything needs an upgrade. And when we talk about upgrades, we're talking about investments. And when we're talking about investments, hey, there's an entire industry that's taken care of. The interesting part is that consumers are already there, right? These are the interesting ones that say, hey, take my money as long as I know it does something good for the environment, right? So there's a huge market growing up and there's still not enough banks actually jumping on it. That's very, very surprising because it essentially means we need to pour so much money into our world infrastructure, which is a huge, huge business for the financial industry. And a part of the market is already ready, right? Pension funds for sure, because they have to look 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead which not many investors do, but even consumers are. So why are we not listening to them and building up the tools to actually get them on board? And I think this is where I'm still surprised that the adoption of it is so slow. If I would have a bank, that would be my only job, making sure I kind of take the money that people will throw at me and making sure I can funnel it into something that actually has a huge impact. Yeah, but I'm seeing that this is picking up now. Just going back to your relationship with Visa, I guess, what Jihan talked about in terms of the rise of fintech, what we are seeing is a lot more partnerships between large businesses and fintechs. And I think what you've described in terms of the influence you can have on Visa, I think is a real case study in how, you know, large organizations can work with smaller organizations and the influence those smaller organizations can have. Without that, the world's doomed, basically. So these large organizations the ones who recognize that they're too slow are the ones who are starting to pick up those relationships. And I think that's incredibly positive. It's a real bright spot. And that's sort of entrepreneurialism and innovation bleeding into these businesses around this very important topic. And, you know, we're seeing that in with other organizations out there as well. So I was head of compliance and governance comms for HSBC Asset Management. <laughs> <laughs> and Barclays internal audit. And the reason they brought me in is because with Barclays, they went through the LIBOR scandal. So they needed someone to come and clean the mess from an internal audit and compliance. And with HSBC it was the money laundering, sorry, the Mexico scandal. The reason why banks are moving slowly towards being sustainable is the complexity of the systems. That's number one. But not only that, I think it's the employees themselves who are in these positions. I call them dinosaurs because they've been in their position for so long. They're very comfortable in their positions and they just don't want to 
change. But because of the scandal and because the share price just fell, they had to change. And this goes back to what Chris was saying about culture, about purpose. So I was part of the team who actually rebranded Barclays values and made sure that the values are lived and breathed. So what we did is we incorporated the new purpose of Barclays, the new values, the brand, all the messaging within their employee life cycle so that it's relatable. And I think that's the problem as well with comms is that the majority of communications that goes out there doesn't really state clearly, what role do you want me to play as your audience? How can I help you? What is the context? So I am a huge fan. I always write about it on my blogs, on my website. Context is key. If you don't give me context of why you want my help and how you want me to change my behavior, it's like you speaking to me, Japanese, and shouting loudly in Japanese, whereas I only speak English. <laughs> so let me ask you a question there, because I remember walking into Barclays head office and they had these big signs up. Do you remember that? Yeah. Integrity, yeah. service, excellence, rise. I'm impressed you remember them. I don't even remember them, Chris. Uh-huh. I remember it, but was it real? Some of it was. So I succeeded in, at least from an internal audit, to incorporate it into the employee life cycle. So we did that. The only gap that Barclays had with these values is that they didn't state what are the behaviors associated with the values. So integrity, what does that really mean? What do you want me to do to become integral? Because my integrity as an Arab will be different than your integrity as a European or a Brit, for example. And that was the one gap that I only knew that it existed after I left because I didn't realize that that's doable. We're going to have to start wrapping up. So thank you. We do have one question, and this is to anybody who wants to answer it, which is how do you think we can accelerate the adoption of transition funding when key executive business owners are bounded to 12 months results? So I guess as people think about their careers in sort of fairly short life cycles, how do we go about that? So as we're moving to a close, I'll give you two aspects. One, an answer to the question, and the second, something for the close. The question is around what happens when you're short-term focused and we can change that. We can change that. A late great friend of mine was Bernard Leiter, who wrote a book called The Future of Money in the 1990s. And it was all about how can we become a sustainable financial system? And there's a lot of work being done by the Long Now, which is another foundation, which I recommend you look up, and Long Finance, which is run by Michael Manelli, a good friend of mine in London, all about how can we change the financial system and the system overall from short-term focus to long-term focus. The issue today is that we have shareholder economics from Milton Friedman's view of the world, and we need to change it to stakeholder economics. And that will happen in the next century. It has to happen, otherwise we won't have an earth. But my second closing point would be during the pandemic and lockdown, we all were stuck at home and did everything from home using apps and the internet and the network. And I could not have survived without that. But I could have been a customer on Mars. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought we need to build a system where you imagine your customers are on Mars, your head office is on the moon and your employees are on Earth. What's the business model for that system? 
and how would you build that system? And bearing in mind that we might completely mess up Earth by the end of this century because of one and a half degrees plus warming, maybe our customers and our employees and our head office will be on Mars. What system will you create for that? Interesting. Interesting, interesting yeah. final thought. Gian, have you got a final thought for us? My final thought is whoever is listening, don't be afraid to take the step to make your business a more ESG focused business or a more people and planet business. So I'm a very practical person. Okay. If you want to start the change and you're scared to understand, or you don't know what change needs to be done to your business model to become more sustainable, the easiest way is to go to the B Corp website. There is a list of questions, 170 questions. Take your time, answer them. No strings attached for free. These questions will at least give you an understanding of what you kind of need to do for your company to become more people on planet focused. Even if you don't want to implement every single aspect, it just gives you a taster of what your clients need from you, what your employees would expect of you, and what your shareholders would want to see when you are talking about your business model. So that would be the easiest change that you can make for now. David, to you. Educate yourself about the topic. If you step into the rabbit hole of climate change, there's no way of return and you will become more radical and radical of the day of the day. So that's the right path because then you start acting your environment and the way you work. If you want a really radical change, well, tie salaries and bonuses to ESG goals. Everyone will be motivated, right? So easiest way of getting that. I know a lot of people would hate me now, but I guess if you want to have a quick change, even in 12 months, just tie them together. And I think there will be a lot of change coming over the next 12 months. Fantastic. Fantastic. Can I just summarize what I think I've got out of this session is that, you know, at the very basic level, as Chris said, companies need to be purposeful. You can't just have a statement and not walk the talk. So that's got to be the basic. The second thing that I got from Gihan is that, you know, once you've got that base foundation, then you need to educate people through communication. That's both your staff and your customer base, right? And then the next level up is giving them all of those stakeholders transparency to see, you know, what impact that they're making and making it measurable, right? And, you know, my bit on the top of that is the way to kind of make it sustainable is to engage them in that communication and in the data that you expose, right? So I think, you know, out of this, we have a very useful framework for most banks to be able to execute, right? Dave? Yeah, completely. And I really think the point of like a fintech, traditional bank or old bank partnership, that has to be the kind of model for how things get done going forward. So yeah, I'd really like to thank you all for turning up. I'd also really like to thank the Ecolytic team who provided some support in terms of getting this up. They're amazing. So thank you so much to you all and have a brilliant day. But thank you for joining us. Happy Earth Day. Oh, yeah. Happy Earth Day. <laughs> Happy Earth Day. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Don Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week.
The Dave and Dom Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas.